Live from Southern California, this is the Jim Rome Show on CBS Sports Radio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Welcome to the jungle. My name is Jim Rome. A very good Monday to you. Hope you had a great weekend. Nice to be here. Broadcasting live from Southern California. Welcome to the jungle. Let me start with the NFL weekend. Now, you knew it was going to be a weird, weird NFL weekend when the Cowboys wrecked the Saints Thursday night, except that was just a start. That was then followed by a Sunday, which included the following. Cody Kessler's Jacksonville Jaguars shutting out the Red Hot Colts 6-0. Cam Newton throwing four picks in a must-win game against Tampa and losing. And losing Greg Olson in the process. That guy can't get a break. Adam Thielen and Bill Belichick F-bombing each other. Lions offensive lineman Taylor Decker doing this. Stafford to throw. Got a man wide open. Look at this. To the end zone for the Lions. It's Taylor Decker. Taylor Decker came off the edge of the line. He is wide open to the half touchdown Detroit Lions. Right? And that's before we get to the Bears-Giants game, which was a full-blown circus. There was Odell Beckham Jr. doing this. End around to Odell Beckham Jr. He's looking to pass it. Now he's going to throw it down the middle of the field. Wide open! Caught at the five and in for the touchdown is Russell Shepard! Wow! 49 yards! And then there was Odell Beckham doing this. Bunch formation to the right. Manning back to throw under pressure. He lobs one left for Beckham! Touchdown, Giants! Wild weekend, 332 pounds, and then some of Akeem Hicks doing Fridge 2.0. And in the backfield, Akeem Hicks, he takes the hand up, and he is in for the touchdown. Touchdown, Bears. Fridge revisited. Akeem Hicks punctures the goal line. And then the most amazing part, Chicago down seven. Three seconds left, no timeouts. Matt Nagy goes legend with this call. Shotgun snap, handoff to Burton, to Cohen, to throw to the end zone. It is caught for the touchdown. Anthony Miller from Tariq Cohen. I mean, holy crap. The stone's on Nagy to go with a pitch to a tight end, a lateral to a running back, and a pass to the end zone with the game on the line. I mean, I don't even care if they lost that game in overtime. Honestly, they won everything but that game. I couldn't love that call any more than I do. And that wasn't even the most insane ending to a game. How about the Chargers going into Pittsburgh and ripping one from the Steelers? L.A. fell behind 23-7. Then they completely turn it around. 23 unanswered points. Pittsburgh's first regular season home loss when leading by 14 or more. They had previously won 220 of those games. Until last night. Of course, it was kind of helped by the Steelers consistently putting a linebacker on Keenan Allen. Look, I'm no Rod Marinelli. Far from it. But that does not sound like great or sound defensive strategy. And of course, Phil Rivers had seven completions to him when he was covered by a linebacker. You think maybe Phil Rivers might figure that out. He was helped by that. And he was really helped by this. Here's the snap. The kick is on its way. That kick is up. And it's no good. Marker down. Oh, marker down. With zeros on the clock. Offside steals. Offside. Defense uh, 23. And Badgley will get another attempt here. Five yards closer. The field goal tried again. There's a block. It's outside again. And the Steelers block it, but the marker's down. They were offside. The fans don't realize that Badgley's going to get another shot at this thing. Oh, oh, 
And they just kept helping him out, helping him out, which ultimately led to this. For the win, Michael Badgley. It's offsides again. And this one is up and through. It is good. The Chargers win. Michael Badgley from 29 yards, even though the Steelers were offsides again. Matt Money Smith, if you need him. Uh-oh. Offsides again. Absolutely amazing win by the Chargers. An incredible meltdown by the Steelers. The Chargers are so brass. They go across the country. They fall behind by 16. They battle all the way back for the win. The Chargers of old do not win that game. The Steelers of old do not lose that game. That was literally one of their worst losses ever, legitimately. Given when and where that happened, that's one of their worst regular season losses ever. They completely imploded on both sides of the ball, physically and mentally. A complete and total disaster. And if Ben Roethlisberger lit his teammates up by name after a bad loss to Denver, you know he wants to burn that locker room right to the ground. How insane was that weekend? How insane? I'd get through all that before I could even get to Green Bay firing head coach Mike McCarthy. Then again, that was the most logical and expected thing that happened all weekend. I mean, you tell me, what's more shocking? The Jags beating the Colts or the Packers firing a Super Bowl winning head coach? Yeah, I understand that he was going to get fired no matter what. And there might be some surprise as to the timing and when it happened. Then again, after seeing Green Bay lose to Arizona in Green Bay and how they lost that game, I'm going to say the Jags beating the Colts is more surprising because the Packers have completely ripped apart. Arizona just took it to Green Bay, and the Cards really have not taken it to anybody. That loss ended the Packers' chances of making the postseason. It ended McCarthy's gig, but let's be honest. Both those things were over a long time ago. That's the first time the Packers have fired a head coach in the middle of a season, and not just some random head coach, but the guy who coached them longer than anybody not named Lambeau. And he won a Super Bowl, so that's pretty amazing in and of itself. Yet, once again, it's pretty obvious that that had to happen. Because the entire vibe around that team was bordering on toxic. And it sure as hell did not look like anybody in that locker room was fighting to keep McCarthy around. Fact is, the offense had gotten stale. In fact, it had gotten stale a whole long time ago. Yesterday, it was just hideous. Like, technically, I think it's a West Coast scheme. But let's be honest. The offense is really just, hey, Aaron... Bail us out. Forget looking for jet sweeps, funky formations, pick plays, guys running free, guys running open. That offense had pretty much deteriorated into, hopefully we stay close, keep it close in the fourth quarter, and then Aaron Rodgers will work some miracle or pull something out of his backside. And that's not actually an offense. I don't need to go into what the team has been like this year since that season opening win against the Bears because it's been bad and this was coming. And not only did this have to happen, it needed to happen right now because if you're going to do something eventually, you better do it right now. And the team was going to fire McCarthy at the end of the season, so it may as well be right now, especially after that game. I would not have been surprised if Mike McCarthy fired himself after the game. You know, walked right into team president Mark Murphy's office and said, Hey, Mark, before you start, I've got something to say. I'm fired. Look, the guy had a nice run. The guy had a nice run 
He's a nice coach and had a really bad ending. And yes, there is a question as to whether coaching Aaron Rodgers that long and winning only one ring is an underachievement. Yeah, I'd say so. But now the Packers have at least given themselves a chance of winning more titles while they still have a transcendent quarterback. Now find an offensive-minded head coach who can take that pressure off Rodgers. Now I'm not saying that Aaron Rodgers is without blame. I'm saying the guy needs more help. Take advantage of the good years that you still have left with this guy. I'm not saying it's all on McCarthy. I'm not saying Aaron Rodgers is without blame. I am saying he had to go. Because just days after saying that they needed to run the table in order to have any chance, they lay down and they get humiliated at home by a bad Arizona team. Somebody was getting fired over that, and it was not going to be their franchise quarterback. Dear Jim, I truly enjoyed my time as the Green Bay Packers head coach. However, I am now in a spot I have never been in before. It's a strange place that leaves me empty inside while the hunger in me rages. Regards, Mike McCarthy, in line, at a salad bar. Denlesks. He's a good coach. Period. Good coach, had a very good run, and it ended very badly, and the guy's got to go. Rome, that's two for me. And the rest is SoCal. When the rest of you loser cities don't have one winning NFL team, we have two here in SoCal. Bring on an all-LA Super Bowl. John in Huntington Beach wore walks of shames in the office on the Monday after the holiday party. John, that's one of your better emails. Both those things might be true. you imagine an all-LA Super Bowl? More than two decades of no football in this town. Imagine an all-L.A. Super Bowl. And if that were to happen, if I were the commissioner, I mean, I'd flex that thing right out of Atlanta and right back to the Collie. An all-L.A. Super Bowl in L.A. You can do that, right? They flex games in and out of the schedule. Why not flex the Super Bowl in and out of a city? That'd be the best thing ever. Wore walks of shames in the office on the Monday after the holiday party. Do you know we don't have a holiday party here because we're on an island? Probably that should be my thing, right? Hey, Rome, aren't aren't you the guy? Aren't you the highest ranking official in that building? Yeah, I guess. Probably should be me. I'm trying to think of the best holiday parties. Yo, Broham, there were some holiday parties back in the day. Uh, I would never name names or name companies or name golf courses where people got it on. But it used to go on back in the day, man. Radio way back in the day. Radio even predating me. Or radio when I first broke in. Man, there was some business being done now. I would never give up anybody or anything. But let's just say they got a lot of business done in the middle of the day. And that the holiday parties lived up to all the hype. Nothing lately. I want to hear from you. Did you make that walk of shame to the holiday party or to the office on Monday after the holiday party? My walk of shame was from the airplane to the carousel number seven last night. Yeah, I'd love to hear about that. Joined by my guy. 
He's an NFL insider for CBS Sports and CBSSports.com. He appears every Sunday on the NFL Today on CBS. He is host of Be More Opinionated, the podcast. The man who will forever have the title of first guest on the CBS Sports Network simulcast. I'm talking about Jason Lockenfora, JLC. Good to have you. How are you? What's going on, brother? How you doing? Good, good. Jason, how about you? I can't complain. Good seeing you in studio as always uh, yesterday. And, uh, yeah, things got a little wild after, uh, after we got off air. Huh? Yeah, what I'll a say, crazy day. Crazy, crazy day. It was great to see you too, Jason. All right, so in terms of things getting wild, the Packers announced they were moving on from Mike McCarthy. We're talking about that. So you had been on this literally since the first month of the season. So were you at all surprised that they made that move yesterday? Surprised in how they did it um, just because they're uh, – not really seen as um, uh, a particularly, how do I say it, progressive organization. You know, they're very um, kind of stuck in their ways. And obviously that's changing a little bit now with with Mark Murphy having um, uh, tremendous control over that organization and promoting Brian Gutenkins a year ago and, you know, Ted Thompson kind of being phased out. And you knew they were going to make a change, but they don't really fire coaches in season ever. You don't, they don't, especially not a Super Bowl winning head coach and, and one you know, won, what, 130-odd games with them, and just not normally seeing how they operate. So I assumed for all those reasons it would be done immediately after the regular season, and things have been trending that way for quite some time. Um, but I understand why they did it. I think we get a little too probably caught up in what looks right and the optics and this or that, because the reality is what was December going to be like in Green Bay, right? The, the quarterback who they're, they're trying to protect above all else is going to be asked about his relationship with the head coach nonstop and who do you think the next coach should be and are you guys playing hard enough for your coach? And that team was miserable, including the quarterback yesterday. That was hard to watch. Like, it almost looked cavalier to me at times. I wrote in my column, almost like it was like, eh, whatever, all shucks, not our year, not our day. I guess they'll fire this guy after the game or sometime soon. It, it wasn't right. And I could see them sitting there, you know, Mark Murphy and others, and saying, you know what, Mike's not going to enjoy answering all these questions. And we already know that this, this decision, we've known we're going in a different direction for a while now in our hearts. And maybe we just do it now, and we can start focusing on our next coach, and Mike can start you know, spending time with his family and focusing on his next job, and Joe Philbin could steer the boat you know, for the next month, and you know, away we go. And I actually don't have a problem with them doing it, and maybe this becomes more of the norm. But because they're the Packers and because they've never really done it, I didn't think they'd do it this way. Jason Lockenfora joining us. I agree with everything you just said. Now, where do the Packers go from here in terms of looking for a head coach? And what kind of a coach do you think they should look for? Well, I mean, let's be real. That's going to be about coaxing the most you can out of the highest paid player in NFL history over the next three to five years, however long his prime ends up being. Um, that's going to be paramount, and they feel like they haven't been getting enough out of the offense in recent years, and, and maybe they're not at the vanguard of, of modern NFL uh, passing and concepts and all of that. So I'm sure that will play a big role in it. I would just say, as much as they're paying Mike McCarthy big-time money now, you know he's been there, what, 13 years. If you go look historically at what they do, and again, maybe none of the norms apply anymore, but like, you know, Holmgren was a rising coordinator. He wasn't coming in the building with a couple of rings already telling people the way this is how I do things. You know, it's kind of their way. And you look at, you know, Mike Sherman and where he was when he got there and McCarthy, where he was when he got there. 
usually it's a guy who at least at the start we can maybe control a little bit and you know we can kind of indoctrinate him into our way of doing things and I do think Mark Murphy has a, a considerable amount of control and I don't know that they want to bring in a head coach making nine million dollars a year when we're already paying our quarterback 36 a year in new money and you know what I mean maybe battling a little bit over power or control or personnel I, my hunch is it's, it's a younger guy someone who they see as malleable probably on the offensive side of the ball if you're making me pick a profile um you know, is it a John Filippo type, uh, a coordinator who's been around the block, you know, who's in their division right now? Maybe. You know, would it be a John Harbaugh? I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know that that's the direction that they ultimately go in. I think they feel like we've got a pretty decent roster. We've got the best quarterback on the planet. You know, here's, here are our, you know here, here's our job description. Take it or leave it. We're talking to Jason Lock and Fora, and obviously they're not going to be the only ones looking for a head coach. And if we have more time, we could break this down. But let me ask you this. Every team looking for a new head coach is going to be looking, and maybe not everyone, but a number of them will look for the so-called next Sean McVay. Jason, how many next Sean McVays are there, and where does his current QB coach, Zach Taylor, fit into that? There isn't another. You know, he's a unicorn, and he's going to forever be seen as a unicorn. And he, his, he may have some prodigious offspring from his coaching family tree. I have no doubt that he will. But I think you'll look back on that tree, and he'll be every bit the Belichick that Belichick is on his tree, et cetera. Um, but nevertheless, it is a copycat league, and what they've done in, in Los Angeles is what every owner's looking for. We, we sunk all this into you know, a quarterback at the top of our draft, and for one year it looked miserable, and then voila, we, we got better ideas, brighter minds, better coaching. We built an infrastructure that, you know, that, that this very young man was able to do on the fly, and the sleeping giant's awake, and now we're bullying everybody else. So that's certainly where they're going to be looking. And Zach Taylor's got a really unique background. And he's seen internally and outside that building as sort of the, the primary lieutenant for McVay. And the guy where, you know, losing LaFleur last year, like that's his boy and all, but like eh, people weren't necessarily sweating. Zach Taylor, maybe a little different. And again, it's still very much McVay deserves all the credit and the accolades because he's put this thing together and that's his offense. Um, and, and, you know, but this guy's doing good, good work with golf, too, and he's got an interesting background. And, you know, he had to come in under a reverse situation in Miami as an even younger guy and come in and steer that ship and, and run that offense on the fly on an interim basis. Um, very well spoken, very organized, very impressive. And, Jim, if there's nine or ten openings, just tell me the nine or ten guy. Like, just, you know, Harbaugh gets a job immediately. Yeah, McCarthy gets a job immediately. Ron Rivera gets a job you know, almost immediately, but then you still could be looking at six or seven. And there, there aren't a lot of hot it guys the way Adam Gase and Kyle Shanahan have kind of been that guy in the past. That's not really there right now. There's not that shiny diamond. So it's going to be a very interesting um, process through January. And I do think Zach Taylor, at the very least, will interview for some jobs. Jason Lockenfor is my guest for a couple of more moments. Uh, Jason, the Kareem Hunt story was a big topic on the pregame show yesterday. Before I get to that, based on your reporting, what is your sense as to the reaction of teams around the league to Washington signing Reuben Foster? Uh, people were shocked and a little bit dismayed that under those circumstances where it's the second, uh, you know, second set of allegations, second arrest, second time facing potential domestic violence charges. It's on the road the night before a game in another city across the, you know, across the continent. 
from where they play, and it just happened literally hours ago. I mean, at the time they're putting in that waiver claim, it, we're, we're you know not even multiple days fully removed from the incident itself, and no one knows exactly where that's going. The police have barely started to investigate. The league hasn't even started anything. To claim him under those circumstances, a player who was going to clear waivers otherwise, no one else was clamoring for, and if you think he's going to ease your guy anyway because you have all these other Alabama players already there who vouch for him, then guess what? He's going to come to you as a free agent for a whole lot less than what he's making as a first-round draft pick on his rookie contract. Um, so that's a different situation than Kareem Hunt, and I'm not justifying anything either way. Like I'm, I, I, it, I'm just reporting. But because that, you know, we know where that situation is, and it is all out there on video, and it happened when it happened, and the police did what they did or didn't do, and because this player is making absolute peanuts by NFL standards, and you've got him for two more years at that price point, and you could control him with franchise tags for you know two more years beyond that if you wanted to, I think he's getting claimed, Jim. At this point, I, I'd be more surprised if he's not claimed than he is. I was going to say, so exactly what does Hunt's future look like? And it sounds like you can see him getting claimed, right? I, I absolutely could. I mean, I know there's teams, multiple teams, having internal discussions about it. And, you know, obviously the owner's got to be comfortable with it. This is not a decision that's made just like the Reuben Foster. You can send Doug Williams out there to talk about it. You can mess up your messaging any way you want. Anybody with a brain knows that decision isn't made unless Dan Snyder wants it to be made. Likewise, in this situation, but could you come out and make the case that what Kareem Hunt did is heinous and horrendous and we will never stand for it? Again, and we in no way condone that, but we do believe in second chances, and there will only be one second chance. And we think by getting Kareem Hunt into our organization now that we have the best counselors, the best therapists. We want to help work with him holistically. We're going to take this mind, body, and soul. We want to get him right as a human being and rehabilitate him as a young man so that we think he's somebody who can help benefit others through his struggle moving forward in our football team and in our community. We want to worry about him, the young man now, so that in 2019, when he is able to play football again, he can do so um, and also walk the kind of walk we want him to, to lead as a member of, you know, X organization. Does that totally sell? I don't, I don't know. Everyone has their own internal calculus, but that's the kind of stuff that's being talked about in front offices as saying this is how we can justify doing it now. Or this is, you know, and, and will there be a real component to that? Sure, but it's ultimately a football decision. Dear Jim, well, I am flattered by the Packers firing Mike McCarthy, obviously, so they can offer me the job without even interviewing me. I think I owe it to the Browns to finish up the season before I decide what job I will turn down to return to being a D coordinator. Regards, Greg Williams and his stack of imaginary interview free head coaching offers. Jason and Dayton were Adam Thielen glossing the hoodie in the parking lot for telling him to shut the bleep up. Part of the drama over the weekend. The hoodie telling Thielen to shut the bleep up. This email says, I'm fired. Who cares? I only want to be with food. Regards Mike and Ike McCarthy. All right, a couple things working there. Hootie is making a comeback with a blowfish. 
Fine. Tommy from NC sent that. Listen, we're not talking about Mike and Ike McCarthy. If you want to talk about Mike McCarthy and whether or not he got what he had coming to him, fine. If you want to talk about where Mike McCarthy might end up, fine. If you want to talk about who the Packers might try to hire to replace him, great. If you want to talk about how out of character it is for the Packers to whack a coach midseason, I'm here for it. I really am. I'm not here to talk about Mike and Ike McCarthy. I'm not here to talk about how much weight Mike has gained since working in Green Bay. I'm not here to talk about what anybody weighs unless they can't make weigh-in for a big fight. Unless they're an athlete and their weight is affecting their performance. Otherwise, I don't give a damn. And nor should you. What I'm saying is we're not talking about Mike and Ike McCarthy. To me, the Packers got it right. It was a little bit out of character. In fact, it was a lot out of character. But you can't say before that game, you know what? It's now or never. We're all in. We have to run the table. And then go out there and lay down, because they did. Lay down against Arizona. Arizona is having a horrible year. Arizona has got a first-year head coach, who I like a lot personally, who may not make it through the year. Arizona cannot go into Lambeau when they're already on thin ice and beat the Packers and then expect somebody not to get fired. Adam Schefter reported that Mike McCarthy was surprised at the move. Really, Mike? Because you're about the only one. What did you think they were calling you in there for? Surprised? You're surprised you got fired. I'm surprised you made it off the field before you got fired. I'm surprised you made it into the locker room without getting fired. I'm surprised you didn't walk in there and fire yourself. Arizona beat you, Mike, in a game you had to have. It's embarrassing. And again, it's the right thing. If they're going to fire him anyway, do it right now. They're doing you a favor. This way, you can get yourself right. They can get themselves right. Going on to the college football playoff. So the football playoff, the rankings get a lot of run. Way too much run. Because they matter only once. They matter exactly one time all season long. So everything leading up to yesterday is just some whack TV show with a bunch of smoke and mirrors and justifications that would change on a weekly basis. I mean, in effect, they're all a bunch of trolls. They're trolling you. It's a reality show. It's a scripted, unscripted show. It's just a big waste of time. The one time, though, that it does matter was yesterday. And here's what we have. And stop me if you've heard this before. The number one team in the rankings is Alabama. The number two team in the rankings is Clemson. The number three team in the rankings, Notre Dame. Same as they've been now for quite some time. The only drama that was going to take place would who would be fourth. And the fourth place team, the one with the right to face Alabama in the semis is Oklahoma. And of course they are. That was the most logical step to take. And yes, I know, Georgia fans are bent. They want to go. They're outraged. I know they want to truck out the argument that Georgia is the team that Alabama wants to face the least. Just ask Nick Saban that Alabama and Georgia have played twice in 2018. And in the 120 minutes of regulation football that they have played, Alabama has led for one minute. And they're 2-0 in those games. The national championship game and Saturday's SEC title game. And both games have been classics. Truly, 
games for the ages. And I would like nothing better than to see a third part of that trilogy. So it is a good argument. It really is. It's just not good enough. Because as good as Georgia is, they weren't getting in with two losses. Not ahead of a conference champion in Oklahoma who avenged its only loss. No chance. You're not getting in with two losses. Not over a conference champ and not over a conference champ that did avenge that loss. So you could talk about how lame that is. You could talk about how it's not the right choice, but the safe choice. You could talk about the committee getting conservative. But this is the way it is. And it goes a little bit deeper than that, too. It's not just the safe choice. Here's why it's the correct choice. Georgia is 1-2 and against teams in the top 11. If you've got a losing record to teams in the top 11, and one of those losses was by 20, and you have zero wins against teams in the top four, how can you really argue that you belong in the top four? So before I get into a Georgia, or get into Georgia, how about a minute now for you Ohio State fans? And you've got no right to complain about anything. If you get smashed by Purdue on national television, you don't get a complaint about anything. And if you barely escape Maryland, you do not get to complain about anything. I don't know if it's a part of the committee's criteria, but if it isn't, it should be. And I really don't care that you beat a completely and totally overrated Michigan team. That, to me, gets trumped by the fact that you got hammered by Purdue. Just like you got hammered by Iowa last year. It cost you then. It's costing you right now. And you should not be surprised by this Buckeye fan. In fact, you should be used to it because it happens to you all the time. You cannot have that bad of a loss and try to argue that you're one of the four best. You're not. Game, set, match, sit down, shut up. Now back to Georgia. The Bulldogs had a very simple task coming in. Win and you're in. And they were winning. Hell yes, they were winning. They were up 7-0. They were up 14-7. They were up 21-7. They were up 28-14 in the third quarter. They had turned Nick Saban inside out. They had pretty much ended Tua's Heisman campaign. And then came the play. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Foot of Jake Camarda. And it's a fake. Justin Fields. Oh my gosh. It was four. Going to take over at the 48 yard line. The Alabama bench knew it was coming. They kept their defense out there. They're playing defense safe. Justin Fields is right here. They were ready for it. They played defense safe and they had no chance on the first down. You know, you can say that was ill advised. I'm just going to say that was moronic. Look, I know you've got that play in your back pocket, I know you've had that play for a while. But there is a time and a place to break that play out. And fourth and 11 with three minutes left in a tied, a tied SEC title game is neither the time nor the place. That's the place for a punt and let your defense go to work against Jalen Hurts, the backup who had not played much this year. Instead, Georgia went all gadget and it went disaster. Look, Kirby Smart is a hell of a coach. So I'm not going to come in here with some lame Kirby dumb but that was not smart. In fact, that was dumb. 
I mean, sure, if you get it, you're a legend. It's one of the brassest moves ever. But here's the thing. Alabama was not fooled. Alabama was expecting it. So not only did Georgia call the play, which I would have never done, they didn't kill the play. When you set up for that and you know that they know, kill the play. They didn't kill it. They actually ran it. That was a desperate play and a desperate move that they did not need to make. You're tied. You've dominated not only that game, but the last game. You've got Nick Saban's number. The apprentice is getting over on the master. But that's what Alabama does to you. That's just what New England does to teams. You always feel like you're losing even when you're winning or you're tied. They make you get out of character. They make you get desperate when you don't need to be desperate. And that's what they were, desperate, when there was no need to be desperate. And then Jalen Hurts, the guy who was benched in last year's title game against Georgia, comes off the bench and he wins it. An incredible moment. Impossible not to feel good for him. But that moment does not happen without Georgia handing it to them. And that's why they'll be sitting out the semifinals and they've got nobody to blame but themselves. That is not an injustice. They did that to themselves. We're joined right now by an award-winning journalist. He covers combat sports for Yahoo Sports, a wild fight. We had Deontay Wilder on prior to this fight at the end of last week. And this fight lived up to and smashed the hype and the expectations. Joining us to break it all down is Kevin Ioli. Kevin, it's so good to have you back. How are you? I'm doing great, Jim. How are you? Good, good, Kevin. Now, you've been around for some great, great fights going all the way back, even to Larry Holmes and Ronaldo, Mr. Snipes. Yeah. Just how big and important was Saturday night for boxing and the heavyweight division in particular? You know, I, I think this was very significant for boxing, Jim, because the heavyweight division has always been the division that attracted the non-hardcore fans. You know, the hardcore fans are going to watch everything. They're going to watch the straw weights and the fly weights, and they're going to be in. But that is a very small percentage of the overall fan base. And to get those people who have turned away from boxing or only watch it once a year, you need to have a good, strong heavyweight division. And so we had two unbeaten guys with a claim to the championship going in the ring and fighting, and they actually fought, and they put on an entertaining show and a compelling fight. Uh, you had a 12th-round knockdown that looked like it was going to be a knockout, and as Lou DiBella said, uh, Tyson Fury pops up like the Undertaker. I mean, it was an incredible fight. Uh, they have to do it again, and I, I think boxing was the big winner on Saturday night. Kevin Ioli joining us. In fact, skipping right to the 12th round, when Wilder dropped Fury, and he did in the ninth round as well, but he did so again in the 12th round, when he hit him with that shot, that combination in the 12th round, what was the reaction in Staples Center when he landed that shot? I think everybody thought it was over, and uh, people roared, uh, jumped to their feet. It was a deafening roar. Shelly Finkel, who was uh, Deontay's manager, bolted out of his seat, and he was headed up the steps to go into the ring, and then Tyson Fury pops up. I mean, it was just remarkable. And I think there was a hush. When Fury got up, people couldn't believe what they were seeing. Everybody thought it was over. I mean, Kevin, to, to really get the perspective on this, and you wrote this, not only did Shelly Finkel come bounding up into the ring to celebrate, and Freddie Roach, who was in Fury's corner, was getting ready to pack it up, there were not too many people on the planet who can take one wilder right hand, let alone two. What does that tell you about Fury and his toughness? 
I mean, I think it told us what we already knew. This is a guy that went 12 rounds with Vladimir Klitschko and, and walked out of it victorious. So uh, it emphasized that this is one of the toughest guys on the planet. There is very few well, – nobody out of 40 previous opponents was ever able to do that. Uh, and when he not only hit him with the right hand, but he came back with that left hook as Fury was going down. And if you saw the uh, fight – Jack Reese was counting right over top of Fury, so the cameras were on him, and his eyes were rolled back in the head. And all of a sudden, at about five or six, Jim, you could see him kind of blink. And it was like something came over him, and he sat up, and he got up to his feet. He didn't struggle up. I think if he had struggled to get up, if he staggered, you know, Reese would have stopped the fight right then and there. But he got up. He was very stable when he got up. He he responded to the questions. And it it was just remarkable how it was. It reminded me a lot of Muhammad Ali when he got knocked down by Joe Frazier in 1971 with that famous left hook. Ali popped right back up. Nobody was taking Joe Frazier's left hook at that point. And I think that that's what I thought of when I saw Fury get to his feet. Kevin Ioli joining us. What about Fury? What did Fury himself say about his ability to get up after that shot? How did he explain that? (laughs) He said that he thinks he was touched by God, the hand of God. He said he couldn't explain it otherwise because he was out and all of a sudden he uh, he had somebody touch him and it got him up. And that that really, I think, when you look at it, that has to be part of the consideration because certainly uh, Deontay Water is as hard a puncher as there is in boxing today and one of the best punching heavyweights ever. And he hit him with something like that and and the fact that Fury was able to get up clear-headed and continue for two minutes in the fight was remarkable. See, that's the next point I was going to make. We are joined by Kevin Ioli. It's not just that he got up, but he still had another two minutes left in that round to stay on his feet. What do you make of how he did that? You know, that was the Tyson Fury we thought we were going to see coming in. The fact that he's a great boxer, he's going to be able to land punches on on you because he throws so fast combinations. You know, somebody wrote before the fight that he had the speed of a middleweight. And while that was an exaggeration, I think he was one of the faster heavyweights you're ever going to see. And this is a guy that's 6'9", 260. Hmm. So that was something that, uh, you know, we expect it, but you didn't expect it after he had been knocked down violently twice and boxing like that seconds after almost being concussed. Kevin Ioli is joining us. Now, Kevin, Deontay Wilder seemed to think that the count was a little bit slow for Fury. What's your reaction? I don't think so at all, and I understand why he thinks that. But I think when you when you look at what happened, and I was sitting right behind the uh, the, per, the person who counts for the knockdowns, and so there's if you watch on TV, sometimes you'll see somebody stand up and they start to uh, do the count, and the referee looks over to them to pick up where the count should be, and I she right away started counting. So she got up, and you saw her count right away. Jack Reese looked over to her, picked up the count, and did it. So I think you know it's like your emotions are running high you feel like you won the fight uh and i understand why deontay said what he did but i don't really think that there was anything to that now certainly you know jack questioned him to make sure he was safe and i think when he was on his feet he might have gotten a couple extra seconds which certainly were critical but that's a referee's job at that point to make sure that the fighter is able to continue and if it takes two or three extra seconds it takes two or three extra seconds so kevin how did you have that fight scored And then what was the atmosphere like in Staples Center before the score was announced? 
I had it scored, Jim, seven rounds to five for Fury, but because of the two knockdowns, I had it even. I had a 113-113. Um, and I think there was this joy in the arena. I think most people in the arena felt Fury had won the fight. That was the, the kind of vibe that I got. You know, there was a huge contingent from the U.K. there, and I think most people felt Fury had done it. But I think they also realized they had witnessed something very special. I wrote in uh, one of my follow-up pieces to the fight that I think it was the best heavyweight uh, fight since 2003, Lennox Lewis and Vitaly Klitschko, which coincidentally was in the same arena. Uh, so you're talking 15 years, and I think the people who were there, they were really excited about what they had seen, and they were rooting for their guy, but they also realized they had seen something that you don't see every day, a really epic heavyweight title fight. Kevin Ioli joining us. So Kevin Fury not only put on a show in the ring, he was something else too in the press conference. What do you make of how he showed up in front of the media after the fight? I, I thought it was one of the most classic uh, things I'd ever seen. I mean, he walked in first, and you know he has this kind of gravelly, garrulous voice, and he shouts out, "Were you not entertained?" And you know his whole uh, persona was fun and engaging, and a guy that hey, you know, and he talked about his mental health struggles, and he and he talked about uh, being near suicide, and that he wanted to win to show people that you can come back when you have extreme adversity in your life. But then toward the end, uh, he did, uh, he was asked about uh, fighting in. Uh, the United States again, and so he says, I have a song to sing, and he starts to sing American Pie by John, Mc John McClain, and, uh, and he sing then he starts to get some of the media involved, and there was a, a reporter, and I couldn't see who it was, because there was a lot of people standing between me and him, but a reporter started doing harmony with him, and then Fury stood up, and he engaged, and uh, a lot of the reporters started singing with him, and then when he gets done, uh, he said, this will be the day that I die, bye-bye American Pie, and he drops the mic and leaves. It was just classic. Yeah. It was wild. Kevin Ioli joining us for a few more moments. So where does this leave Wilder in all this? Like, what's your sense of where Wilder is mentally? Does he feel like he got robbed? I think he feels. I think both guys feel like they won the fight, but I think they both also know why there was people who saw it the other way. You get knocked down twice in a fight. You know, from Fury's standpoint, you're losing two points in a close fight. That's going to be critical. On the other hand, you know, Wilder knows that he was outboxed in the early stages of the fight. He wasn't landing much, uh, so you know he knows that Fury did a great job boxing. So I think each guy comes out of it feeling good about himself. I think the course of action is clearly a rematch. I mean, I'm not usually a fan of immediate rematches, but I think this one is desperate for an immediate rematch. All right, so if we have an immediate rematch, what do you think Fury would look to do differently? And what about Wilder? How would he approach it? I think from Wilder's standpoint, Jim, he has to throw more punches. I mean, he has to be a little bit more aggressive early in the fight. Like, if you, if you look, I gave Fury the first round, and I'm watching it very carefully, and I, when I score a fight, I'm, I'm always saying in my head who I have up. And for most of the first round, I had Wilder, but he wasn't throwing a lot. And then Fury came with a good combination late in that first round, and I felt that was enough for him to take it. So Wilder, I think, you know, has to start sooner, and he has to really cut off the ring and try to get Fury on the ropes and in a corner, which he didn't do a lot. From a Fury standpoint, he just has, he just has to box a little bit better, keep that jab popping. I think that you know, if I would have said one thing, if he would have used that jab more often, which I, he used a lot, but I thought he would use even more than he did, that would be the change that I would see him making. Kevin, one last thought. Wilder was giving up nearly 50 pounds to Fury and still dropped him twice. What does that say about his punching power? 
I, I don't think it's a stretch to say he's one of the best punching heavyweights of the last 50 years, and I can't go back further than that because I didn't see those guys, but it's hard for me to believe that Jack Dempsey, who was 185, 190 pounds, would, you know, and has a reputation of one of the great punchers of all time, punched harder than this guy. Uh, and you know, the fact that he did it in the 12th round, I mean, it's one thing. You see a lot of heavyweights who have power in rounds 1, 2, 3, and 4, but he showed power in rounds 9, 10, 11, 12. That says something. God, how disconcerting, Kevin, must that have been for him to know that he hit Fury with his best shot, that combination, and that this guy got back up. I mean, that's like some Apollo Creed Rocky stuff, like Apollo Creed looking over like, are you kidding me? You're still fighting? Yeah, that no, there's no doubt. I think that that had to play with his mind, and I think that that will affect the way he fights the second fight. Like I said earlier, I think that will make him start sooner because if he put more punishment on Fury in the first part of the fight, and I disagree with the one judge who had Fury sweep in that uh, first half of the fight, uh, but if, if he had put more pressure on, maybe Fury is not able to stand up to those punches in the 12th round, but because he hadn't taken so many huge shots early, he was able to take them later, and I think that's Deontay will remember that and say start earlier. An amazing fight and a great breakdown right there with an award-winning journalist. He covers combat sports for Yahoo Sports. Kevin Ioli, my guest. Kevin, thank you so much. Well done, as always. Have a great day. Kevin Ioli, did you watch that fight, and what are your thoughts? That segment's brought to you by Heat Branded Products, designed to keep your fuel system flowing even under the harshest conditions. Remove water, raise MPGs, clean the fuel system. Heat, baby. Heat. All right, we're gearing up for hour number three. Dennis Dodd will be joining us in the final segment of the program. So in the meantime, we are open. 1-800-636-8686. Quickly to the LBC. Time for an IRA update, an IRA sighting. IRA, what's going on? IRA, you're on the air. What's up, bud? What's up, buddy? Am I on? <laughs> you have been for like five minutes. What's up, Ira? I'm sorry, Robbie. I couldn't hear you there for a second, buddy. What's going on? The same thing as I said like five seconds ago. What's going on with you? Ah! That couldn't have gone much worse. You don't like that call. I don't like that call. Not a very good call. You know, Ira. I continue to try to defend you against everybody going in on you being homeless. And then you call up and you make that call. A guy who's been calling this show for 25 years can't get through one call. And now I'm going to have to deal with thousands and thousands of tweets and emails about your homeless situation, your phone situation. Couldn't have been more awkward. That, that was terrible. Like, if I make room for you at the end of the hour, you got to be ready to roll, Iray. And now people are going to call up and say, you know what that was, Rome? That was his shrimp Bluetooth piece that wasn't connecting to his phone, and he couldn't hear you. War Iray using a shrimp for Bluetooth. Follow me on Twitter at Jim Rome. Email me at Rome, R-O-M-E, at habitate.com. I mentioned the wild NFL weekend. In fact, so wild that I didn't get to Mike McCarthy until lower in the open. Mike McCarthy fired by the Green Bay Packers. I think that most thought that would happen at the end of the year. Very unusual for Green Bay to do it midseason, especially for a guy who won a Super Bowl. 
except he had not won that Super Bowl in eight years. He and Aaron Rodgers very clearly were not on the same page. They were underachieving as a team. And it's not like anybody went to battle for the coach. Now, I think McCarthy did a really nice job there. McCarthy is a really good head coach. McCarthy is going to land on his feet. But I'm not going to argue they did the wrong thing. If you're going to fire a guy and you know you're going to fire a guy, you may as well do it right now, especially after one of the worst losses you're ever going to see. And these guys barely show up for the game. They get beat by Arizona at home in a game they have to have, in a game where during the week they were talking about the need to run the table to have any chance whatsoever, and then they lay down. So if you're going to fire the guy, do it right now. You're doing him a favor. Put him out of his misery. And I agree with Jason Lockenfora, who said, if you do it right now this way, both sides do not need to answer questions for the rest of the year. It would have been extremely awkward, a major distraction. Take care of it right now. Then McCarthy has a chance to get himself right, get himself situated, look for the next opportunity. The Packers can start to look for their next head coach. I don't have an issue with this. I don't have an issue with this happening midseason. It might be out of character. It might be unusual, but I've got no issue with it whatsoever. At the end of last hour, I. Ray attempted to have a conversation with me. It did not go well. Dear Jim, hey, I'm sorry the string on my tin soup can broke and I lost my phone connection with you. I'll try later. Signed, I. Ray, trying to call from a cardboard box of a house under the freeway overpass. Scott and Boise. And then on Twitter, more to the point. At Mike D for three tweets, and I quote, Run that bum. What's up, buddy? Am I on? <laughs> you have been for like five minutes. What's up, I Ray? I'm sorry, Robbie. I couldn't hear you there for a second, buddy. What's going on? The same thing as I said like five seconds ago. What's going on with you? That's pretty horrible. Mike D for three tweets. Run that bum. Quickly, Mike, there is no bum smack on this show. Number two, why are you doing IRA like that? Like, that was frustrating to me, but I would never call him a bum. Oh, really, Rome? He's homeless. All right, then. He's homeless. That doesn't make him a bum. And why are you talking trash about one of our own who's homeless? Quote, run that bum. The guy literally tweeted that. Run that bum. Not I raise a bum. Run that bum. Again, I'm going to ask the question. Why are you referring to one of our own as a bum? Not a bum like, man, that guy's a bum. That guy can't play. That quarterback's a bum. Man, that guy's a bum. No, he called him a bum because he's homeless. Like, he's a bum. Like, run that hobo. Run that bum. Come on, Mike. At House Punter tweets, Tell Iray you get the best reception when you leave the abandoned train car. House Punter, also bum smack and not allowed. At Total Big E tweets, War Iray running out of change for the payphone. At Mock Moda tweets, Iray, when Jim comes to you, don't be eating your shrimp Bluetooth. Don't forget Mark Moda. 
at Eric Ranrapidian tweets, too bad Iray isn't phoneless. No, he's not phoneless. He's homeless. Or as I mentioned back in hour number one, there was an absolute ton to talk about from the NFL. Lots of hot topics. And then there's Kareem Hunt. Now, I'm sorry this bums you out. I'm sorry if it bums you out to hear about another player involved in a domestic violence incident. I'm sorry if you want me to only talk about the games. And believe me, I feel the exact same way. I wish I was here only to talk about the games. I would like nothing better than to only talk about the games. Do you think that I want to talk about Kareem Hunt? Do you think I want to talk about another player accused of domestic violence? I would love to spend this time talking about Philip Rivers and what he did last night, something I still have not gotten to. And the fact that Philip Rivers does not get nearly enough run. Hell, I'd love to talk about Cody Kessler. I would love to talk about anything other than a man appearing to repeatedly strike a woman. But I have to. We all have to. We all have to because it keeps happening. And just because it's not fun doesn't mean we get to ignore it. Because it's been ignored for far too long. Friday, TMZ releases video of Kareem Hunt kicking a woman in the hallway of a Cleveland hotel. It's a really difficult video to watch on so many different levels. And it's difficult to wrap your head around the fact that the incident took place in February, but the video is just surfacing right now. And then shortly after the release of the video, the Chiefs released Kareem Hunt in a statement which read in part, Earlier this year, we were made aware of an incident involving running back Kareem Hunt. At that time, the National Football League and law enforcement initiated investigations into the issue. As part of our internal discussions with Kareem, several members of our management team spoke directly to him. Kareem was not truthful in those discussions. The video released today confirms that fact. We are releasing Kareem immediately. End quote. So, what do you do with that? Do you respect the fact that the team released a Pro Bowl running back in the middle of one of the team's best seasons ever, and they did so as quickly as they did? Or are you concerned with the fact that the incident happened in February, and he was released nearly 10 months later, and only after the video became public? Because based on that video and the statement from the team, The issue is not that he allegedly assaulted a woman. It's that he was not honest about allegedly assaulting a woman. And you have to wonder, if the video does not get released, does Hunt get released at all? I'm guessing no. No video, and he's still a Kansas City Chief right now. And the fact that charges were reportedly not filed in the incident makes it tricky. Same with the fact that charges were apparently not filed in an incident where Hunt allegedly punched somebody at a resort in Ohio in June. But here's the thing that I don't get. How is this video only coming out right now? According to The Athletic, the team knew the video existed, but, quote, they were told by the NFL to stop pursuing it later in February once the league began its investigation. End quote. Nate Taylor in The Athletic went on to write, quote, 
As part of the fallout from the Rice incident, the NFL formally took over the responsibility of handling all investigations into potential violations of the personal conduct policy. Part of the reason the league took over these types of investigations was to keep teams, which have a vested interest in keeping players on the field, from potential conflicts of interest. The league, however, couldn't obtain the video. End quote. So, if the NFL is telling the team to stop trying to get the video, the NFL better get the video. And how is it that TMZ is able to get the video, but the NFL cannot? Is TMZ just that much better at doing this work? Or do they actually want to do the work and the NFL just wants to be seen like it's doing the work? Why does TMZ get the video, but the NFL can't? And that's not the only weird part. According to ESPN, quote, during its investigation into the February incident that cost Kareem Hunt his job, the NFL did not interview the running back or the woman that he shoved and kicked. The NFL never requested an interview with Hunt after the incident that occurred outside the Cleveland residence. The NFL did reach out to the woman and her friend on multiple occasions, but they did not respond, end quote. Now, the league cannot force an alleged victim to respond to questioning. They're not the authorities. They do not have that kind of subpoena power. I understand that. But did the league really not talk to Kareem Hunt? Did they really just leave that up to the team? But I thought they were taking that away from the team. I mean, so why would they do that? Why is that, especially when they acknowledge that a team might have a conflict of interest when it comes to investigating their own players? So, to recap, Kareem Hunt allegedly assaults a woman in February. The league gets involved in the investigation, but does not talk to Kareem Hunt or the woman and does not get video of the incident. So what kind of an investigation does not involve talking to the two people involved or getting a video of the incident? Like, what were they investigating? What did the investigation consist of if they're not talking to either party and they don't have the video? Now, compare that to the insane amount of time, money, and energy that they put into investigating and researching the inflation levels of footballs in the Pats-Colts game. An investigation which included interviewing 66 witnesses, writing a report that was nearly 140 pages long, and more. And they took it to court. Man, they battled. They battled for that, didn't they? So they'll investigate Deflategate with that intensity and that attention to detail, but not an alleged assault. Why is that? How does that add up? Now, I'm not saying that the league does not care about domestic violence. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying the way they handle it still does not make a lot of sense. When you have a team signing Reuben Foster... Hours after he's arrested for the second time in a year for domestic violence. And then you have this bizarre, quote, investigation of Kareem Hunt. It almost seems like they really haven't learned that much in the time since Ray Rice. It's very strange. I'm not saying they don't care. 
I'm saying it's strange the way they go about investigating. What are your thoughts? 1-800-636-8686. To me, the Chiefs did the right thing. They did the right thing in cutting him. They did it the right thing in doing it as quickly as they did. Now Somebody's going to claim him. The Chiefs also said reportedly, you're not going to play here ever again. We will do what we can to help you. We will do what we can to help you extend your career and get the help you need, but you cannot play here again. Somebody's going to claim him for sure. That kind of player, that kind of ability, on that kind of contract, at that age, somebody will claim him. Me, I don't want to be the team or the owner to have to explain that. I'm not doing it, but somebody will. In fact, more than one team will. The Redskins may have been the only team that was truly looking to bring in Foster. More than one team will be looking for Hunt. You know that's going to be the case. We are joined by good friend of the program, a national college football writer for CBSSports.com. He is in New York today. Get his grind in. Dennis Dodd is my guest. Dennis, great to have you back in the jungle. How are you? Jim, I am great. How are you? Doing great, Dennis. Thanks so much. Listen, before we get to the college football playoff and the Final Four, let's go back to Saturday night. Dennis, what was going through your mind as you saw Georgia taking it to Alabama early in the SEC title game? I, I, and I even put it on Twitter. I said, this is really going to happen. You know, 28-14, to 14, they had gone against Alabama with the one thing. No one's really tried against them this year, and they just tried to isolated to being a physical game in the trenches. They ran all their runs, most of them, between the tackles, a controlled short passing game, and it, it threw Alabama off. And to sit there with Rodrigo Blankenship lining up for a 30-yard chip shot field goal that it extended the lead to three scores, I'm thinking this is over. But he misses it, and that's what let him back in the game. I mean, think about how close that would have been. I don't think Alabama comes back from 30-14, to 14, but they did 28-14. Dennis Dodd joining us, and that they did. Now, ultimately, Tua had to leave that game, and Jalen Hurts, of course, came in. It's one thing to say that Jalen Hurts, who was 26-2 and two as a starter, would just come in and win it for Alabama, but the truth is he had thrown a total of 58 passes this season. <laughs> and then, Dennis, he comes in when the team needs him the most. What do you make of the way he showed up on Saturday night and what he did? It, you can't write it. You can't make it up. Even Nick Saban, I walked off the field with him, and I, I, he just shook his head and he said, same team, same place, same situation, different quarterback, same result. I mean, that's basically what he said. He couldn't believe it. And it's a testament to Jalen Hurts, to Nick Saban. I think the greatest coaching move Nick Saban has ever made, and it paid off Saturday, was keeping Jalen Hurts on campus. You remember back in the summer when his dad – Jalen Hurts' dad said he's going to be the biggest college football free agent ever. Well, that means he's going to transfer. And we didn't know he was staying, Jim, until, get, until game five when he went out there against, I think it was against Arkansas, to play when the new NCAA rules said if you play only four games, you can retain your eligibility. You knew he was staying, you know, about halfway through the season. And then for him to come in, I think the biggest thing is he's a different player. Um, he's not short-arming the ball like he was last year, afraid to turn it over on that game-tying touchdown pass to Waddle. He throws it into a tight window, a tight window confidently, and has no hesitation. And then the game-winning score, where he does a quarterback draw, 
He was perfect. I mean, it's 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 a fairy tale thing for a football factory. Dennis Dodd joining us. Dennis, to your credit, you actually had made that point before the season started. You said before the season started that the greatest work of Nick Saban's career yeah. may have been in convincing Hurts to stay. So what's your sense as to what Hurts' teammates think of him and how he handled the entire situation? That to a man, I talked to a bunch of them in the locker room, and, and center Ross Piersbacher, who obviously knows those two intimately, said, I gained a new level of respect for Jalen, not because of, of what you know what he had accomplished that night, but the fact that he stayed to be around to accomplish that, and I think that was the vibe going around the locker. You know, there was no crying. There was, you know, Tua. This is a different situation. Tua is not losing the job. He's going to come right back after the surgery this month. But those guys had never gotten sideways with each other in a championship game last year. You know, with with Jalen Hurts basically losing you know, his job. He, he knew then he was he had to leave you know, if he wanted to play. Both of them said the right things. I don't think they were coached up much in the moment. They were complimentary of each other. And I think that's why eventually Jalen stayed, and they had the deepest quarterback room in the country, and that was proven Saturday night. Dennis Dodd joins us. So Tua, Dennis, is dealing with an ankle injury that might have a timeline of two weeks. So how do you expect Alabama to handle that as they get ready for Oklahoma? Well, it's it's got to be heartening for Oklahoma. I don't mean to disparage Tua having surgery, but if the best player, arguably the best player in the country, is undergoing surgery in December before the semifinal, you know, you just wonder what his mobility is going to be like. You know, there's always been questions about that right knee. Now, this is an ankle, but the right knee that he hurt against Arkansas. He wore a brace after that. He took it off before the Citadel game. Um, and I asked him, I was on campus last week, how do you feel? He's great. You know, mobility's great, freedom, convinced the training staff to do it. He walks into the next room and does a, a podcast with Kirk Herbstreet and Ian Fitzsimmons and tells them, um, it's not fully recovered. I, I tweak it now and then if I make certain movements. I said, whoa, 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 what's going on here? So you see on the first series, he goes sack, interception, tenth, if you remember that. Right. I came back out and played, but I don't know if he was the same, and now he's got the ankle injury. So the, the best thing he can do right now is rest. Dennis Dodd joining us. All right, so going back to Georgia. They're up by two touchdowns in the second half. As you point out, Dennis, they had a chance to go up by three scores. How much is that loss going to haunt them? Well, uh, for this year, I mean, in this what is developing into the SEC version of a 10-year war between Nick and and Kirby, um, it's huge. You know, Kirby in the back of his mind has got to be thinking, you know, I I have the age factor over Nick, but when are we going to get over on these guys? You know, they, they had them shut down. They had them shut down last year, 13 to nothing at halftime, and Tua comes in. And this the field goal. Look, if you're, and right after the game, Jim, you knew this, there was this, you know, kind of rumbling for, well, Georgia, you know, they need to be in there. No, they don't. Here's why. Uh, they're a very good team. Maybe one of the top four teams in the country, but you can't reward them after blowing a two touchdown lead. After that, that uh, fake punt call at midfield, which still hasn't been explained fully, with the with the Alabama starting defense on the field and punt safe, um, that's why they don't deserve to be there. It's a tough world, and you lost two, and two two lost teams have never been in. So, I think in his heart of hearts, Kirby Smart's wondering when are we going to get over on this guy. 
Dennis, I agree. You're not jumping a two-loss team over a team that won its conference mm-hmm. title when they avenged their only loss, and one of those losses was by 20 to LSU. They're not getting in. So no. go ahead. Finish your thought. No, I, my, the only thing I was going to say is they basically lost the two best teams they played. I mean, we can argue about that fact, but they lost the games, the two teams they had to beat to be in this argument, and they didn't. What about Ohio State? They would lead you to believe that they've got an argument, but after they got hammered by Purdue by 29, did that not effectively end any argument they might have? That Purdue loss hung around their neck like a stinky roll of cheese, I think, (laughs) or whatever you want to call it. I I don't think the committee ever got past that. I know they're supposed to only consider this year only, but they had to be thinking about Iowa last year, and that kept them out last year. Yes, I know it was a second loss, but now it's a pattern. And it's inexplicable. And Ohio State finished well. Uh, you know, Dwayne Haskins was about the only thing they could absolutely 100% count on down the stretch. And, look, he may win the Heisman. We don't know that. But the Purdue game is still inexplicable, and here, here's why. This wasn't a Purdue, Purdue team temp, you know, on the rise, um, supposedly on the rise. After the Ohio State game, they went 2-3 and three and barely squeaked in for bowl eligibility. And I'm not, I'm not disparaging Purdue, but this that wasn't a breakthrough win like everybody put it. They didn't do anything with it. And you're not showing up to the party with a stinky roll of cheese <laughs> around your neck, Ohio State. Stop acting like that. Now, Dennis, the one conference that we have not talked about is the Pac-12. What does that say about where that conference is right now? Well, it's not good. I mean, we, we had a five-part series on OregonLive.com last week. I don't know what I could add to it. You probably read that. Yep. It's I think I've even said it on this show, and here's a good way to sum it up, and I love Pac-12 football. If we make fun of the SEC for it just, be, it just means more slogan, in the Pac-12 it doesn't. Um, you have a group of presidents who are happy with equestrian titles and volleyball titles and everything else, but don't want to put in the infrastructure and put in the work to make those teams good at football. Um, and it's the little things like playing those late games. Um, you know, the, uh, the network is an ab- abject failure. So not as many people, that's another reason that many people see it. And that, that sort of thing changes the dynamic when they are the number five conference among the power five. A few years ago when they were putting in the new headquarters in San Francisco, they returned 67% of the revenue to the members. Every conference in the country besides the Pac-12 routinely returns 90%. There's a bunch of upset ADs in the Pac-12 because they can't go out. Let's say Urban Meyer becomes a free agent. They, can't, they don't have the money to go out and pay him $7 million a year because of that. Yeah, as a West Coast guy, Dennis, I would love to refute that, and I simply cannot. I, I can't. It's true. <laughs> it's true. Listen, before you go, what is your early impression of Clemson-Notre Dame? I think Clemson's got too much team speed for Notre Dame, but I absolutely believe in Notre Dame. I think they should be in there. Twelve and zero is twelve and zero. I love the defense. I love Tillery. I love Drew Tranquil in the secondary, and I obviously the moment they went with Ian Book and got Dexter Williams back from suspension, they were a different team. But I just think you're talking about a Clemson team that's that's going to be faster than a lot of key positions. Trevor Lawrence is just kind of scratching the surface right now. And um, he's going to be motivated to get back to Alabama if that's the way it is. But you've got the favorite Clemson in that game. Good night now!